Okay, let's talk then about the Gospels more specifically. Let's talk about Mark as one of those. And before we do, I'm going to talk about the major form. Again, this is mostly in the synoptics. But the major form that Jesus often uses in teaching, he's got the big, big sermons. But then you notice he's also got a lot of parables that runs through. And so I want to talk a little bit about, I'll have some interpretive keys through here just to help you when you're reading these parables and wondering, what is he really saying and why is he doing it this way? One story is a powerful form of communication. Many people find out with a shack or so you don't want church anymore. People write another story, Wayne. I love stories. And like, ah, come on. Some things are good stories. Some things are good teachings. But uh, a story is compelling. But the main reason Jesus told things in parables was he didn't want people to always understand what he was saying. He wanted some people to understand. He wanted other people not to understand. And the way he did that was to use it for a parable. Now, why wouldn't he want people to understand? How cruel is that? Well, Jesus seems to indicate when he's talking about why he teaches in parables is that there are people who are not ready for the church truth he wants to unpack. And the longer you walk this journey, I think one of the things that the doctrine police don't seem to understand, and I know some of them will listen to this and write horrible blogs about it because they seem to like to take things I say out of context, and they will say things like, Wayne says the Bible is not the Word of God, and you know, make a whole big deal out of that because they're just like that. But one of the things they, that, that, that Jesus seemed to indicate is there are some people that aren't ready for truth. And when you give truth to someone who's not ready for it, you only drive them deeper into the hole they're in. And the doctrine police know, even if they're right about something, when you come at somebody with, you've got to see it this way, and if not, you're a horrible person, and we're going to lie about you and your associations with other people, what they realize is they don't endear people to their message. You're not getting people saying, gosh, I should look into this more. You're going, wow, that's creepy, and I don't want to. Jesus knew that. The more I've been on this journey and talked to people, whether it's strangers on airlines or people in conversations and in houses or people just asking me a question on their own, my neighbor or whatever, in their own spiritual journey, you may not even know Jesus yet, is there's a time when people are ready for truth. And there's a time when they're not. And I can tell that by if I'm giving someone too much, they get defensive. And when you're getting defensive, I'm not helping you. The reason I think Jesus is doing things in parables is because he didn't want to make the Pharisees any more defensive than they were. He really was trying to invite them into something real. And when you're fronting somebody with truth they're not ready for, that's the whole pearls before swine thing from the Sermon on the Mount. We think that's kind of, we see it as a pejorative. You know, you don't put pearls before swine because you don't give valuable things to, to garbage. That's really not the point. The point is among the things pigs can't digest is pearls. You give pearls to a pig, they'll eat it because they don't know what else to do with it, and it will kill them. So it's not, it's not a pejorative. It's, not, it's as you grow to live love, and I think I see this in the gospel so much, Jesus is very aware of who he's talking to and what they're ready for. That's why he doesn't always answer a question directly. That's why he tells the parable. So that seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear because they're not ready to repent. They're not ready to say, hmm. But the disciples were. They would go off with Jesus later saying, boy, that's sower and seed thing. What in the blazes were you talking about? And he explained it to them. Or the pearl of great price. He explained it. This parable is the kingdom. So parable is a very common form. It's a way Jesus sets up an analogy so that he can teach us something. The analogy isn't, oh, it's not an allegory. It does, you can't always take it to its extreme. And I think one of the parables where people really have trouble with is Luke, I think it's Luke 12, where Jesus is talking about the, or Luke 11, where Jesus is talking about the woman who needs some bread and comes to the judge at night and bangs on the door and he won't get up and give it to her. And then she just keeps banging on the door and finally says, you know, because he just doesn't want to be bugged anymore. And that's supposed to be a parable on prayer. And so the idea is you have to just really be obnoxious until God gets sick of you, and then he'll finally give you what you want. And that's not what Jesus is trying to do. What Jesus is telling us is focused on the persistence of the widow, not the attitude of the judge. He's just saying, 
hey, in prayer, don't give up. When you're asking God about things or praying about stuff, keep it before God because there's a perseverance as prayer helps shape us. Maybe what we're asking for isn't a great thing to ask for. He's going to shape us. Maybe what we want is for another time and then the continued putting it before God, it opens the door. Some things, as Jesus said about demons, they come out by much prayer and fasting and there's more of a, a way to, to be involved in that. So the teaching is not make God sick of you. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's nothing in the life of Jesus that encourages us to make God sick of us or that prayer is that. In fact, John 15, when he talks about prayer, he's saying, ask the Father for whatever you want in my name, and he will give it to you, and by this is my Father glorified. Not tick him off, and you can get what you want. So let parables, they're usually focused on one thing. Take that nugget of truth. It's usually about the kingdom, and, and then you get to live in that truth. But the reason Jesus is doing it is to keep it from others. And uh, often he makes the conclusion himself. Actually, the, the reference I was giving you is Luke 18, about the, the lady. So, let, so Mark then, let's talk about Mark. Again, I said it's a pretty quick book. It's, he uses the word suddenly a lot. He just, man, working you through this overview of who Jesus is and what he's doing, lives he's touching. So a very brisk pace. He's a narrator. As I said, he's giving us Peter's view of it. He probably wrote this after Peter's death in Rome. If you want to know some of the background, I put these in the notes so that if you... I think it helps. You're going to start reading a book. Like I said, NIV Study Bible will give you some notes up front. It, it isn't an unhelpful thing. I mean, it, there's a double negative for you. It is a helpful thing to kind of understand a bit about the background of this book before you get into it. So whether it's Mark, Matthew, whatever, you, I, that's why I prepared a lot of these notes. So you could go back and look here and just kind of, okay, that's what it's about. And the theme is basically just as the Son of God. That's going to be in contrast to, to Luke, who's going to talk more about the Son of Man. But what Mark's embellishing is this divinity of Jesus. Jesus among us as God's son, living in the world, making God known. And you're going to get that very quickly. There's a lot of conflict. He loved, again, this is drama, man, high drama. So there's conflict with demons, conflict with the elders and the, the leaders and the, uh, the religious leaders. And then you've got a lot of Jesus praying at night. So you've got this contrast of the conflict of the world and drawing to be with the Father. And coming back to engage the world. And so Mark's going to give you a good, quick read, miracles, parables, those kinds of things. Matthew, as I said, takes a little different tack. Matthew does seem to be, and again, we don't know. There's a lot of traditions surrounding these books. Scholars even fight over whether it was Matthew, the disciple that wrote this. I think most agree that it probably was, or at least derived from him. Matthew, the tax collector, with Jewish readers in mind. The day of the writing, we're not sure. Could be AD 50, could have been... I don't know why I got 115 in there. Somebody posits that, which seems awful late. Matthew would have been an old geezer by then. But in any case, it's, it, we're not sure when it was written. But, G, but Matthew wants to do is demonstrate Jesus as the Messiah. 153 times, excuse me, 53 times from 19 different books, he quotes from the Old Testament. That's a lot in 28 chapters. He alludes to the Old Testament 67 times from 25 different books. And often you're going to have language like, and Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What he's showing to the Jewish reader is, and this is probably a lot of the argument Paul was making in synagogues, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. What the Pharisees missed, what the chief priests missed, what the Sadducees missed, Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. And by coming to know him, we get to know that he is the life of that. And the use of that, it might be fulfilled 13 times. So you're going to get a really good look at the Old Covenant. If you look at parable passages, you're going to get back into some of the Old Testament to see, oh, that's how Jesus was being foreshadowed. Even though, as Peter said and we read earlier, they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. They saw the glories of the Christ. They saw the suffering of the Christ. They saw the Redeemer. They saw him being abused. And they, they couldn't figure out how all that pieced together. 
And the disciples got to watch it. And even the angels longed to look into those things. Couldn't understand. And we get to understand now through their word and through their life. So Matthew is really written more to a Jewish audience. It's showing Jesus as the fulfillment. But in that, even if you're not Jewish, if you're a lover of the Old Testament or you want to be, Matthew is going to help make that bridge because he's drawing the Old Testament into the story of Jesus and helping us see that. So his major teaching, Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, the ministry charge to the disciples, chapter 10, where he's really sending them out and giving them great stuff about ministry and life, the kingdom parables, the church and discipleship, Matthew 16, 18, and then the whole second coming set of parables and, and the story and then the parables, 24 and 25. So those some of the main teachings. There's parallel passages to those. So one of the ways to read the Gospels, if you want, is when you read something in Matthew and Mark and Luke contain exactly the same story from a different slant or different viewpoint, read it right together. And then don't work through reading. I've got to read a chapter a day or two chapters a day. Forget that. Read a story a day. And if you want to read that story, that's going to help flesh out this more well-rounded view of who this Jesus is and what he came to do and say. Again, kingdom is predominant in Matthew 54 times using the word kingdom. Now we come to John. As I said, John, I'm going to skip over Luke because I like doing Luke-Acts together. When I read Luke, I'm always reading Acts next. I just love to follow that through because that ties in. So John, some people say it's the easier book to read, often recommended to new converts to read because there's just a lot of very simple, wonderful theology. It's not as complicated a book at one level. But John's writing very, very deep theology. The John 1 stuff we read, the John 13, even just telling the narrative of washing the disciples' feet, John throws in something like, and to show the full extent of his love. Not the cross, the washing of feet. Not just to Peter, but also to Judas. I mean, you get some things that John's throwing in that just are fun to kind of explode on for a long time, enjoy that kind of stuff. But John, as I said, I put a his his theme is the Son of God, emphasizing the deity of Christ, His stated purpose, John 20, 30, and 31. I could have written many more things to you, maybe even alluding to the other Gospels. There's lots that they wrote. But then even more, he said, I suppose the world couldn't contain the books that could be written about Him. But I have written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in His name. And unfortunately, we too, I think, look at, we too many times look at that as a salvation scripture. It's not a salvation scripture. It's not just believing in Bible. It's not become a believer and have life in his name. What he's saying is, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll trust Jesus as the Christ. Hear relationship there. To be in a relationship with Jesus as the Christ. And where you trust him, you have life in his name. And where you don't trust him, well, then we get the anxieties of life and the fears and doubts and things we struggle with. So I know when I've got anxiety and fears and doubts, I don't deal with the condemnation stuff anymore. That's just a real part of life. There are things that... I don't trust Jesus about in my life yet. I'm learning to, want to, growing in, but I don't. So I want to learn to live in that trust. When I'm living in that trust, I'm at rest. And John says, I've written these things to you so that you can trust and by trusting. So it's more than just a salvation deal. It's actually engaging us in the kind of relationship that he had with them and that John wants him to have with us. That's why in his letter, when he first John, the things which we saw with our eyes and heard with our ears and our hands handled concerning the word, this we're announcing to you. Our fellowship is with the Father, and so is yours. And he's inviting people in to the saint, this disciple whom Jesus loved. And so in, in the Gospel of John, you're getting 
a little bit more of a story read. He spends more time developing a lengthy story and then usually a teaching to go with it. And I made you a whole chart that goes with that that you can look at and kind of see what the themes of those are. Again, don't get lost. Read it yourself and find out what the theme is. But read through and ask, what is Jesus saying here? And why is he saying it to these people? And why did John think it was one of the important things? So there's John's big on sevens. There's seven I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. He's big on that. He's, uh, he's using seven specific signs that were more than just a miracle, but a sign of something greater. And he's inviting us to look the marriage feast at Canaan. He changed the water into wine. Not just, hey, pretty cool miracle at a wedding. It's a sign that Jesus has come to serve the best last. That what he's bringing in, the, in his life and in this revelation of God is better than anything we had before. So there's a whole list of kind of the teachings and dialogues. And you'll see it's really structured around those realities. And then he comes to, gets to 11 and 12 and it's Lazarus and disappointing people. Mary and Martha by not rushing to Lazarus right when they found out he was sick. And then right after that, he talks about being a grain of wheat. Unless it falls in the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. And Father, what should I say? Save me from this hour because the hour's come for him to be glorified. And he says weird stuff to the disciples that go, what are you talking about? So the hour's come for me to be glorified. And they think, wow, that's great. That means a stage and standing ovation and people give you awards and you win American Idol and all's good with the world. <laughs> and uh, he's talking about dying. His glorifying is being killed on a cross. And he said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Well, yes, that's what we would say. Most of my prayers prior to 15 years ago were, Father, save me prayers. <laughs> oh, my gosh, look what horrible things happened. So God, fix this, heal that, kill that person, you know, whatever. Make my life easy. And yet Jesus says, no, what I'm going to pray is, Father, glorify your name. And that becomes the prayer in which all our prayers become real and become answerable. So I, I can, in the middle of a very dire circumstance, say, okay, God, here's what I would love for you to do. And that's the Father, save me prayer. Usually he goes, mm, nice idea, son, but no. And then there's the Father, glorify your name prayer, which is God, what do you want to transform in me? And John draws that out. Here's a man, Jesus, walking in dependence with his Father. That's powerful stuff. He's, he's learning to live in that as our example, to live there too. He goes to the garden with them. And I love when the disciples are messing up as they often do in these books. They're falling asleep in the garden. He's really asking to pray. Is he condemning them? He just, you know, gosh, watch and pray. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows. Yeah, you want to, but it's late. You're tired. I'm amazed. You guys are still awake tonight. It's great stuff. Appreciate it. But he just, you know, spirit's willing and the flesh is weak. And there's a Jesus that's really unpacking a marvelous way of walking with these disciples. And he gives us that through that. And then I said 14, 15, 16, key, key passages for you and I to understand how to live this life. So when you get to know who Jesus is and you want that Jesus to be engaged with your life and pray yourself through passages. When you read something in John 15, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the time to stop and say, Jesus, teach me the reality of this. I accept that it's true. I just don't know how to let you live your life through me. And I'm always trying to do it for you. And I don't know how to live this way. And that's, that's how my life has been the last 15 years of this journey. It's been living through the reality of these things because Jesus is assuring us that we can have these things. And if we can have these things, then it's how we learn to live in that reality. So John's unique in terms of the other Gospels. Great place to smooth for a while, spend some time there. And then we get to the, 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 the Gospel of Luke quickly before we end tonight. 
Uh, again, Luke is, is not one of the early disciples. He's one of the people that came along later, physician by trade. But take a, took it upon himself to write this researched, academic, authoritative, authoritative narrative about the life of Jesus. Collecting evidence, I guess, from all the people he could talk to. And then trying to, we get more of the birth from him than anybody else, the birth of Jesus. We get more of Jesus growing up years, though it's not much, but we get a little bit. And we even get this proclamation, which most people who think God's this horrible meanie from the Old Testament and Jesus snuck down here to save us. You get language like this. Luke chapter 2, the, the shepherds are in the field and the angels are announcing uh, the birth. And then all of a sudden there's a host and they're singing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men with whom God is pleased. How many have ever thought God came into the world because he was pleased with men? What we thought is he's angry, ticked off, trying to rescue us. God was pleased. God was pleased with men who were fallen in their brokenness, and he comes to redeem them out of that. And women, that includes you too. I realize those are generic things. It's amazing stuff that Luke gives us some stuff no one else gives us. Probably wrote later than the others. May have even borrowed some from them. I don't know. He wrote late 70s, they're thinking, mid-70s. Again, he's the son of man. Jesus' humanity. He's really pointing out from a physician's perspective. This was flesh and blood reality. This wasn't a ghost that appeared among us. He didn't glow in the dark. You know, He was a real human being living through real realities in our life. And uh, so he then talks about how the equip the Messiah, the active role of the Holy Spirit healer as well as deliverer and apologetic. He's really convincing people of the certainty of Christ's life and his life among us. You take, you take Luke along with the book of Acts, and, and Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament. Not Paul, as most people think. Paul wrote the most books. Luke wrote two, but they're the longest. And those two books combined make him the, the largest writer of the New Testament. And he's just giving us the story. That's what I love about Luke. He's giving us the story and in Acts, as we'll talk about when we begin again uh, in the next session, we'll see more of what's in Acts that's really meaningful to us. But Luke has great attention to detail, great attention given to homier details of Christ's life, emphasis on prayer, uh, medical interest, again, more time with birth and emphasis. So with that, we get a different picture again of Jesus. And these things all, again, there's like a stereo or quadraphonic sound. You're getting four different looks at the same life. They're going to differ a little bit. They're not going to differ on anything factual. They're not going to differ on anything that matters about who he is. They don't differ on anything about his message. There's nothing in the Greek on those of you who say, oh, you need to know Greek to really understand Scripture. You really don't. There's nothing that's disputed in our translations in any major way about these things. There are, if you read some of the things, though, people say, you know, this isn't in the oldest manuscripts. Not really sure Luke really wrote this. Maybe it was added later. But then you don't know if, in fact, it was dropped by some scribe and some scribe found it later. We're just guessing. And part of the academic guessing is we trust the oldest narratives the most. The oldest stuff we can find is probably the most accurate. But we don't know. And even passages like John 8, not, everybody's not sure John actually wrote John 8, that it wasn't the, the adulteress and Jesus forgiving her. There's reasons why people wouldn't like that, I think. But, uh, and the, the end of Mark 16 is disputed whether that was written in the original or whether that was added later. There's nothing in those even disputed passages that I think change the message, whether you leave them in or leave them out. The message is still the same. The reality of Jesus who came to be our Redeemer and now wants to engage us as the most significant relationship that you have, closer than your best friend. 
I know it's mind-blowing because it, it, sometimes this whole God-Jesus-religion thing, it seems kind of like he's the Santa Claus guy. You know, he's that invisible presence, and as sometimes people call him, he's that absentee older brother in your life. You know he's there. He sends you a letter now and then, but he never, he's never there when you need him. Jesus is there when we need him, and I think for the most part, because we've done this through such legalism and law, we haven't learned to recognize Jesus when he makes himself known to us. So when Jesus says something to us that he would say to his disciples, like, to, like take Peter, for instance. We get to the end of his life, and Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And if you're Peter, you're thinking, wow, and you told him no, right? And no, you didn't tell him no because Jesus said, I've already prayed for you. What? You didn't tell him no? I've already prayed for you. That your faith, you're going to deny me three times tonight. That's what he tells Peter. This is one of the big sins, isn't it? If you want to rate sins, you know, this is, if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my father. This is a big, big sin. Peter's going to commit it. Jesus knows he's going to commit it. Jesus could stop him from doing it. Jesus could say something to him like, listen, Peter, if you go with me tonight, you're going to make a mistake so bad I can't fix it. So I tell you what, you want you to do this. Go home, lock your door, get under your bed. I'll see you Sunday. Now, the Jesus I grew up with in Sunday school, that's what he would have had to say. The Jesus of Scripture says this, I've already prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not and that you return again and strengthen your brothers. Jesus in prayer had already factored in the failure Peter had yet to commit. If that isn't grace, I don't know what is. It teaches that Jesus in Sunday school. It teaches that Jesus already had our failures in hand, that Jesus knew tonight, yeah, Peter would want to die for him. I think he knew that. Spirit willing, flesh is weak. And Peter saying, I would die for you tonight. Now, I know, I know you want to. I, the reality is, I know the depth of our relationship. And tonight, at Caiaphas' house, in the pressure of the moment, and the accusations are going to be made, and your fears, ah, you're not going to do it. But I know you, Peter. This is not the big denial of, if you deny me before men, I deny. Because your whole life, Peter, is going to speak of a greater reality to who I am. But tonight, you're going to be a wuss. Tonight, you're going to chicken out. And I'm with you. I'm okay with it. I'll be there. I've done this with crowds that I've done teaching with where, I, where I've, done, I've had more time and been there a week, particularly with YWAM or training classes. And I'll just, I'll tell people about this point. I said, I'm going to go outside on that bench and I want you to wait in here 30 minutes. And when I'm done, I want you to come out there. I'm Peter on Saturday after Jesus died. And I want you to help me. And they come out there and I am depressed, angry, condemning myself and all the stuff I get from people is not the things Jesus said. No one thinks about, hey, Peter, you remember Jesus said this would happen? He already prayed for you. He knew this would happen. He knew today you weren't. He's ready to have you just be right back in the bunch. No one's what they say. Well, you know, you only denied him three times, Peter. Maybe if you go out and share him with three unbelievers, then you can negate that. It's, it's all the pr- and I, I mean, I have a half hour discussion. And not once hear from these kids who really are trying to learn the language of grace. Anything about that grace. What they hear instead is performance and how we get back on the performance treadmill. Jesus came and the stories that were told of him, if we got all that religion unpacked out of it and we listen to what's really there, these are the transforming books that make a huge difference in our lives. Enjoy them. Great place to read. As I said, take three years if you need to. 